Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Today we're going to be into our Sermon on the Mount series. This is week number three. Week number three, and uh, we're moving from how people find their way into the kingdom of heaven, and we're moving into uh, what we will call marks of the kingdom of heaven. So as we get into it, we're in the Beatitudes, the blessed ours. Uh, they're not formulaic ways to earn God's favor or his mercy or his blessedness. It's, we said last week, if you're poor in spirit, you don't try to become poor in spirit so that you can earn God's blessing. You don't try to be a person who's just mourning all the time to earn God's blessing. It doesn't work like that. These are marks of people who have taken up residence in the kingdom of heaven. And so uh, last week, what we talked about was cattle, right? I mentioned cattle. Because back in the day, you'd brand the cattle, and that was the way for two different ranchers to know whose was whose back before fences ruled the world. And so people would mix the cattle, but you'd go, well, that one's mine. It has my brand on it. We said that's a little bit about what we're talking about in the Beatitudes, and, and even the Sermon on the Mount is a larger idea. These are the brandings, the marks of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now, it's one thing to talk about cattle. Uh, let's talk about children. Not branding children, that's not good. Here's a picture. Uh, some friends shared this with us. Uh, on the left, that's like 1846. That's Tim Butler, who's a member here. If the color looks off, it was black and white. We fixed, you know, we did the thing where you add, I'm just kidding, Tim's. He gave me permission to share it and then I roasted him. I'm very sorry. Um, on the right is Tim's grandson. And Luca, could might as well just be Tim. <laughs> and the faces they make, and I mean, the haircut is spot on. But in general, to, when I saw this picture, I kind of do that thing where you just go, oh, wow. Like, it's not even a question. And this is two generations, right? This is, oh, and these two might as well be twins. It's an uncanny resemblance. It's an undeniable resemblance that Luca bears the mark of Tim, doesn't he? Luca bears the resemblance. It's undeniable that, that Luca belongs to the lineage of Tim. You may have this in your family. Maybe this is something that you have one of those um, running around. You got a cousin or you, maybe your child or your parent or something, and people tell you that. We have that in our house. My 14-year-old looks like my wife, to the point that relatives who haven't seen us in a while will see a thing on Facebook and be really spooked that the 14-year-old looks like you looked like when you were 14. That's the text she'll get over and over. Ooh, this, I was confused. I thought that was you. And Steph goes, but it's not. And they look the same and increasingly look the same. And they're wired the same. And so I have this joke in our house. You know about the King James Bible, the these and the thous? Um, then there's the new King James Bible, which is kind of the same thing, but they just took a couple of the these and the thous out, but it's really the same Bible. So that's what I call my wife and my daughter. There's the King James Version and the new King James One's newer, but they read the same all the time. And so we are, our text thread is literally called King James Texts. And that's, I'm just like, it's fine. It doesn't matter who sent it. I'll give you the same answer. My younger child, my 11-year-old, has uh, all the same little freckles that I have and all the same spots. So like, we got a little thing going on. We have a little dot right here next to our eye, exact same spot. You got one on your wrist. We're just, just weirdly mapped 
bodies that are like, well, that's weird, but also sort of undeniable that we have these physical connections that sort of, oh, and what do you call those? You know when you have a, we have the strawberries on the back of our neck or the angel kisses or whatever that's called? What do you call that? Birthmark. It's a birthmark. It's, it's sort of this physical indwelt evidence that we belong to each other, that we have the same birthmark. We have the same DNA. We, we're of the same substance. So much so that as my children get older and they make their way through life, people will see them and say, you must be a Burkholder. You must be. A, and you, maybe you've had that before. You, you come from a big family and somebody finds you at a family reunion, you're at a Christmas thing, you're back at your old high school, and somebody goes, oh, you must be a Johnson. And you're like, how did you know that? People can just tell. There are undeniable ways that you belong, that you are marked. And there are also, it's also true that if you tried to mimic all the things that my children do, you could mimic them in a thousand ways and we'd still be able to smell the difference. That's not the same thing. You can get a Sharpie and put dots all over your body. It's not gonna, we know better. That's not it. You can't mimic it. it it's sort of this this thing that you just, you can smell it out. Is that real? So what we're talking about today is that sort of idea, but the birthmarks of a kingdom life. What are the undeniable marks of the follower of Jesus? Matthew chapter five, verse six. Jesus says, blessed, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So we isolate verse 6 as our first verse here today. It's a kind of a pivotal verse in this, in this little uh, piece of scripture, because we said last week there was the three verses that kind of establish how you get into the kingdom. You were um, you were poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt, and you were mourning, and you're meek. This goes with those and you hunger and thirst for righteousness. This also goes with this week's, which is one of the marks of someone who's in the kingdom already, which is someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. But to go back, like that helps you get into the kingdom. That's part of the pathway in. If you think about it, if you search the world for righteousness, you can search high and low. It doesn't satisfy. You find little places, maybe this is it, maybe that's it, maybe this good cause or that, and it never quite fully gets you there. Eventually, what you do is you seek out Jesus. You're in here because either you sought out Jesus, and that's why you're here on a Sunday morning giving up your time, or maybe you haven't yet said Jesus is for me, and I would argue, I think you're seeking out Jesus. I think the thing you're looking for, the thing that you're searching for that leads you to a place like this on a Sunday morning is to say that all of these other things have failed me, so maybe it's Jesus. And we would say, yeah, it's going to be Jesus. And Jesus... We hunger and thirst for more righteousness. And hunger and thirst is appetite language, isn't it? I mean, it's Donut Sunday, so maybe you're okay today, but it is also getting perilously close to lunchtime. It is technically brunch time. You might be hungering and thirsting for a lot of things right now. As a believer, you hunger and thirst for Jesus. It's appetite language. We're in Matthew 5, but if we just turn back one page, we would go, and at the beginning of Matthew 4, we would find Jesus being tempted. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, appetite language. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread, appealing to his what? 
his appetite. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Being super hungry and weak, the devil says what? Just make some bread, dude. You know you can do it. I know you can do it. Just make some bread. Jesus, Jesus responds with scripture, in effect saying, nah, bro, no thanks. But, but the devil's appealing to his appetite, right? You're hungry. It's been 40 days. Just make some bread. So it's a physical thing, but it's so much more. What the devil is inviting him into is he's leveraging his hunger and his weakness in the moment to say, just step off the path for a minute. Because we said the kingdom, the kingdom of, of heaven, this is a pathway to life. We've said that. That the following the way of Jesus is the way to true life. And what the devil is offering Jesus is a chance to step off the pathway just for a minute. Satisfy yourself. We are people of incredible appetite, aren't we? Constantly unsatisfied. The average person eats how many meals a day? Like seven, right? <laughs> Three, two, but then does that count? What about that snack? Like Three meals a day if you're, okay, we'll just pretend you eat three meals a day. We got a friend, we have an elder who eats first breakfast, second breakfast, and then there's lunch. If you didn't have second brunch, it's like nine meals. How do you, okay, doesn't matter. Okay, I'm getting, okay. my appetite. If you eat three meals a day, it should surprise you that you're always hungry for another meal, right? It should be a little bit aggravating that I just ate this morning and I have to eat again and then I'm getting shaky by two o'clock so I go and find some chocolate maybe and then I eat again at five o'clock and then at like 7.30, I should go to bed but I am kind of getting hungry. I'll sleep better if I eat. And so you, you know, you justify it like that too. So you get a little snack right before bed because you're always hungry. It's, it's built into you to have this appetite. We're always unsatisfied even when we get more of something, if we take it out of food and take it about other things, even when you get plenty of something, you want more. I'm not mad at you. You want more of what you have. If you have something, you want more of it. If you have more of it, then you want the better one. If you get the better one, you want the different one that my friends don't have, so at least they're jealous. People collect all sorts of things. You collect things. I know about these things. People collect stamps, cards, coins. Some of you collected Beanie Babies. We, can, we see you. We see you. Some of you still have a closet full. They're going to be worth something. Collect shoes. People collect all kinds of things. We collect just about anything you can imagine, people collect. You have enough money? You have plenty of money? Still kind of want more. Put that money to work. Let that money make more money. You take a great vacation, get back from that vacation. What do you want to do? You got to plan another vacation, a better vacation. We don't blink twice at the term starter home. Think about that. The most expensive thing you'll ever buy in your life, that's ah, just your first one. Don't worry about this. You'll be a better one later. It's expected that you're going to want a bigger, better one later. Get this one, but just don't sell. Get more houses, lots of houses. We have incredible appetites for all things. So the question as we look at what do you, what do you hunger for in life? What do you thirst for in life? The enemy appeals to your appetite. 
in all of these areas. The enemy appeals to appetite because everywhere we turn, we, if we're not careful, we'll hunger and thirst for something less than righteousness. We'll hunger and thirst for something that we want to satisfy us in this way, but it won't actually satisfy us, but we'll still chase it in order to find out if it will, knowing it won't, and then it doesn't, and then we come back to square one and we go, okay, now what do I want? If you're hungry for security, the enemy offers greed. If you just had a little more money, you'd feel better. Hungry for intimacy, the enemy dangles lust. If you're looking for simple provision in your life, I just need provision, just my daily bread. The enemy says, wouldn't gluttony be fun though? Wouldn't it be good to just load up today? You get it. What do you long for? What's the thing that you long for in life? What's the thing that you think about all day? What's the, what do you long for? What do you hunger for? What do you thirst for? And that becomes pretty quickly, if you start asking that question and really answering it honestly, pretty soon you start asking a better question, which is where do you look to see your needs met? Where are you looking to see those needs met? Most of us look inwards. We look to ourselves. What good plan can I come up with? What strategy can I devise? How can I engineer my life to get the thing I'm after? What am I after? How do I get it? Some of us look to uh, righteous heroes of the age. This is fine. This is normal. We look for little avatars of who we want to be or people that represent righteousness to us. And depending on what you're into, that can be any sort of thing. Intellectual titans or a clever mom blogger or medical genius or a tech wizard or a pastor or whatever. You can be like, if I could just get closer to this or I could be more like that, then maybe I'd be satisfied. And even though any of those people might profess to chase righteousness or actually be chasing righteousness and actually displaying some form of righteousness... And it doesn't mean that they're evil, but what we can know for a fact is they're not going to be able to carry the weight of righteousness for you. We're drawn to people who are motivated to make things right in the world, but none of them fully satisfy. They can't bear the weight of the cross. And Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Knowing that if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll never stop until you find him because he's the only one that'll satisfy Only when you realize it's Jesus do you realize that it's Jesus, and only when you realize that it's Jesus do you begin to want more Jesus. It's a a funny thing. Once you know Jesus, you begin to see the world as just needing more Jesus. You start to see nothing less than true righteousness will do. You run into people who have real-life problems, and what do you say to them about that? You leave and you go, ooh, those are some big problems. Y'all need Jesus. You seen this shirt? This is so normalized in our culture. Y'all need Jesus. You know where I pulled this from? I right-clicked that on my little screen and saved that photo from walmart.com. Walmart knows you need Jesus. Everybody knows it. It's that ubiquitous. It is the answer to all the questions. And so when Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, What are we mourning? We're mourning the fact that someone doesn't have Jesus. We first mourn our own sin. I'm mourning the fact that I couldn't do it. I'm mourning the fact that my sin has separated me from God. I'm mourning. And then once you are in the kingdom, you still mourn. Why? Because you run into somebody with a major life problem. You run into somebody whose heart is broken. You run into somebody who's knee deep in sin and they want solutions and they want books and they want ideas and they want strategies. And what we know to be true is they just need more Jesus. And so we mourn for them because if they just knew Jesus, life would be different. So the believer is marked by hunger and thirst for righteousness in Jesus. Next, verse 7, blessed are the merciful, 
they shall receive mercy. Remember, um, this is not quid pro quo. This is not if you're merciful, God will be merciful to you. It's not that. We'll get to that later. He says it again. It's not that. This is saying that if you are um, mercied, you've received the mercy, then only from that bank account of mercy can you be merciful to others. And so you would have to first have asked for mercy to even know what mercy is to give it away. So remember we said meekness says I'm a sinner, and then mercy builds on that. Mercy says, see, I can see you just like I see me, and we all need mercy, we all need Jesus. I know that, you know that, so as a result of me knowing I need mercy, I also know I can be merciful to you because we both need the same thing. But someone who doesn't know mercy will never be merciful to someone else. You've experienced this probably. Mercy is compassion for people in need, and the merciful draw on a bank of mercy. The scripture says, those who've been forgiveth much, loveth much. That's King James Version. If you've been forgiven, then you know how to forgive others. If you've been loved, then you know how to love others. If you've been mercied, if you've been given mercy, then you know how to be merciful. Hunger and thirsting for righteousness, they can't achieve this. The self-righteous become self-justifying. They don't think they need mercy. They can just work harder to get it themselves. They'll point to the accomplishments of religion. They'll work harder, follow the rules, shame you for not doing it. And Jesus' kingdom exalts the lowly and dismisses that self-righteous person. Luke chapter 18, Jesus is dealing with this exact problem. To some who are confident in their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, don't think they need mercy. I'll work my way out of it. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, on a Pharisee, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you I'm not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all I get, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Hungering for righteousness, the humble seek mercy. Humble find mercy, and then in that mercy, they know how to apply mercy to others. So the believer is marked by mercy. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The primary meaning of this phrase, pure in heart, uh, deals with sincerity. Heart, if you uh, look at scripturally, heart represents the center of your being. So it is not a beating organ in your chest, although it is that too. It's the center of your being. It's the full composition of you. So the pure in heart represents blessed are the pure who are in their integrity, in their fullness. They are pure with pure heart and pure motive. Honest and transparent genuine, unmasked. Tim Keller says it this way, purity of heart is not about reformation, but transformation, which is again, undermining the idea that if you just try harder, it's not about being better. Being pure in heart is about being new. So a lot of us, uh, we'll, we'll do fake it till you make it. I hear this all the time. How's that new job going? Well, just fake it till I make it. You know, they don't know. Jesus is not into fake it till you make it. It doesn't work in the kingdom. Jesus is not after better behavior and a better resume, and if you can just kind of fake it till you make it in the kingdom, it'll all be okay. 
Jesus wants purity of heart, honesty of heart, and newness of heart. So you can't take the old thing and just slowly improve it until it's Jesus-like. You have to actually get rid of the old self and take on the new self. Scripture says it over and over and over. You have to die to yourself, the old you, die to it, forget about it, and then take on Jesus. Take on his life, his resurrection, his agenda, his priorities, his kingdom, which means your agenda, your priorities, your kingdom go to die. Not very popular in our world, but ascribed to a hundred different people, the, the, the popular quote is that Jesus didn't come to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive. Too many of us live in a world as Christians where we think Jesus came to make bad people good people. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus came to make dead people alive but it requires that we deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. It it requires that we put the old self to death and we take on the new self to live that life. The kingdom is life anew, not life improved. The kingdom is an exchange of who you were for who he is. The kingdom is abandoning all of the idols, the lesser things that aren't necessarily even bad things. The lesser things we're attached to trying to work our way, climb our way into some better form of living. Pure in heart means we give King Jesus access to the innermost parts of our life, the most intimate thoughts, the most intimate desires, and we say we want these to look like you. We want these to be yours. Pure in heart means I represent myself publicly the same way I do privately. It means my desires are my desires are my desires, and I'm me, fully me that I desire to be exchanged, made new, not to be faking it till I make it, not to try better, not to look better, not to polish my image. Blessed are the pure in heart. When we are pure in heart, we invite Jesus to be Lord of our entire self. Psalm 24, King David, before King Jesus, King David said it. Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and pure heart who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false God. Who stands in the presence of God? It's the one with the pure heart, the one who forsakes all of the lesser paths and says, I'm going to stick with this. The one who says, when the devil says, why don't you just, just step off the path for a minute, just turn the stone to bread, just satisfy that appetite, just take it. Jesus says, you want to see God? Stay on the path. Stay on the way, stay on the way, stay on the path. Don't deviate. Do you want to know God? Do you want to please God? It's not about your ceremonies. It's not about your religion. It's not about your presentation. It's about a clean heart and a new life. The believer is marked by purity of heart. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. We finish on verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Language says sons of God. We're going to say in a minute, this applies. You can call it daughters of God if you want. We're going to apply that later, but the Bible says sons of God, so we're going to stick with it for a second. See where I'm going here. This takes us back to where we started. Sons of God, this this language, sons of God, takes us back to where we started the sermon today. What did we say that the Beatitudes were really about? They're they're marks. They're marks of a family resemblance. These are marks of people who are active in the kingdom. These are marks of people who have this new life. So blessed are the peacemakers. There's another mark. Jesus is called Prince of Peace. He comes to restore peace. The word in the Bible is shalom, perfect wholeness as God designed it, kind of that original, perfect designed wholeness. 
is the peace that we're after. So when we say we got to live out of our design, when we say we have to have desires that go in line with our design, when we talk about the design of even our bodies, we talk about that in the, 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 the context of shalom. God creates and designs on purpose for a reason, and he desires for us to fit into his created beauty. That's what we're after. Peacemakers are seeking to drag others into that peace, to, seeking to bring others who are at odds, bring others who are divided, bring others who are angry into a place of perfect shalom where we experience the full peace of our created design, oneness with the Father. So we're to be pre- peace bringers, shalom seekers. The Bible says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all. As far as it depends on you. Look, the world's nuts, upside down, everything's messed up. You can't be peaceful all the time with everybody because not everybody wants to be peaceful. But as far as it depends on you, you better be pointing to the shalom. You better be pointing to the design. You better be pointing to what makes people whole. Not compromising your values to get two people to be less unhappy. That's not it. That's not peace. Compromising your values to make two people less unhappy is not peace. Peace is pointing people to the one place where their soul can rest. And when we do less than that, we just demonize the whole thing. I was going to say a different word, and I held out. Pretty proud of myself. I edited that so they didn't have to in the podcast later. We mess it up. We blow it. When you compromise the values of the God of heaven so as to not have conflict, that's not peace. That's actually breaking peace because peace as designed is the word of God and the law of God and the heart of God applied to life. So in a neighborhood dispute, in a personal reconciliation situation, in the way you vote, whatever it is, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called, here we go, sons of God. The Jewish thought here where sons of God would be a partaker of the character of. That's, so, so this is son of God means partaker of the character of God. Okay? So Jesus calls these fishermen the Zebedee brothers early in his ministry. He calls the Zebedee brothers out. And he's like, will you follow me? And they follow him. And he names them the sons of thunder. Sons of thunder. That's, it. That's their nickname. What is he saying? Is he calling their dad thunder? No. He's saying they are partakers in the character of thunderstorms. This is how they carry themselves. They are basically walking thunderstorms. They're reflecting and resembling what it's like to be caught in a thunderstorm. These two. They're brawlers. They're sons of thunder. He's not demeaning their parents, those thundering parents. That's not it. We would know that. We have a phrase in our language that we're also not going to say so it doesn't have to get edited out, where people call something son of a something. Yeah, there's kids in the room. Sorry. That's not an insult about parents. That's an insult about the person. It's the, char- the character of the partaker of this person. So let's, let's unpack that. If I call um, Joe, Joe, I love Joe. Joe's sad that he sits in the front row today. If you're late, you sit in the front row. He wasn't late, but he always sits here. But if you're late, these are the seats that are always open because nobody wants to be like Joe right now. If I call Joe a son of a dog, let's go there. Joe, you're a son of a dog. I'm not calling Joe's father or his mother a dog. I'm saying Joe has the characteristics of a dog. Joe, you have the characteristics of a dog. And he goes, that's offensive to me. Rightly so. So if I call you something else, 
I call you a son of God, I'm saying that you have, Joe is a son of God. Joe has the character and the resemblance of the character traits of God. There's no higher honor. Blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called sons of God. They shall be called daughters of God. They shall be those who, when seen, others will say, I see in you the character of God. Just like I see in you the character of thunder, I see in you the character of dog. I see in you the character of God. That's beautiful. The reward for being a peacemaker, for being the last to raise your voice, for seeking reconciliation in all things, for using your life to bring shalom to earth as it is in heaven, the reward for being a peacemaker is that you might reflect and resemble the Lord of creation. So the others around you, whether they articulate it that way or not, would go, daughter of God, son of God, daughter of God, son of God. You reflect and resemble the creator. So clear is your character. So unmistakable your birthmarks. That it's clear whose you are. That's, that's the Beatitudes. So clear is your character, so unmistakable your, your birthmarks, that it's clear to whom you belong. This person is a son of God, a daughter of God. It's clear who they belong to. So we'll close with this. As a dad, my goal is not that my kids behave in a way that people say you must be a Burkholder and have that be a compliment. That's nice. I don't mind that. But that can't be my goal. My goal is not that, that my name would be held high, that, that somehow their resemblance to me would be the aim, because all that does is flatter me. As a dad, my goal is that my children would develop the character that people would look at them and say, you must be a Jesus follower. That's the goal. If they ever knew I existed or not, you must be a Jesus follower. I want their character, their mannerisms to be such that they take on the good stuff and the stuff that mom and dad do that isn't quite on track, the stuff that we do that's a little still 1% off, that they leave that behind and they go a little bit higher, a little bit further in the way of Jesus so that people wouldn't look at them and go, you must be a Burkholder. They'd go, you must be a Christ follower. That's what we're aiming for. That's what you're aiming for. And it isn't just for, this is for my children, this is for me. That the goal of my days is that I might live my life and make my mark in such a way that people don't go, isn't he righteous? That people would say, looks like he must follow Jesus. There's no other explanation. What do the marks of your life say about you? That's the big heavy question to end on today. What do the marks of your life say about you? The merciful, hungering, thirsting for righteousness, peacemaker. There's the list of what the marks of the kingdom dweller are. What are the marks on your life? What would the list look like if people had to write them down? What are the marks of your life? And what do they say about you? What do the marks of your life say about who you belong to? Or where you think belonging comes from? And then as you kind of ponder that as you sit with that, as you wrestle with that this week, the question really becomes, what would it take in the days to come? What would it take to grow your resemblance to Jesus? What does it look like to live your life with the intentionality to grow your resemblance to Jesus? I'll leave it there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your, um, 
grace to us is astounding. Lord, as we stumble through life and we scratch and claw our way in um, just speaking for me, just my confession, as we attempt over and over to do it ourselves, as we step off the path of the way and we step into our own strategies and desires and designs, Father, you are patient with us. You're patient with me. Lord, as we seek you and we seek to grow in resemblance to you as we want to be more like you, as we want to have your mark on our lives, God, I pray that you would give us mercy as we need mercy, that we might feel the fullness of your love and grace. And in that, Lord, would we be a people that seek righteousness, that hunger and thirst for nothing less. Lord, give us a desire, plant it deep within us that nothing less than you will satisfy. Remind us that it is in Jesus and Jesus alone that we find hope. Father, even as we sit here and as we, as we appeal to you, bring to mind the things that we're chasing today, the lesser idols that we hold, bring to mind the things now that need to go away so we can make room for you. Father, find us to be your children in every way today seeking to be more pure, more holy, more childlike in our dependence on you and our resemblance of you. God, thank you for meeting us in this place, for walking us down this path, and for the promise of what awaits. We lift all this up in Jesus' name. Amen.